Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Wednesday, October 4th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today, the UK has run out of weapons to give Ukraine. So the UK has run out of military equipment that it can give to Ukraine, and this is according to a senior British military source speaking to The Telegraph. And this source said, quote, we've given away just about as much as we can afford, end quote. And this source said that the UK had a role to play in encouraging other nations to continue arming Ukraine. They said, quote, we will continue to source equipment to provide for Ukraine. But what they need now is things like air defense assets and artillery ammunition. And we've run dry on all of that, end quote. So the UK has been a staunch supporter of the proxy war in Ukraine and has led many escalations in NATO support, including the provision of Storm Shadow cruise missiles, which have a range of 155 miles. Ukraine has been using them to target Crimea a lot lately. And the British also sent the toxic depleted uranium ammunition. They were the first NATO country to do that. Uh, And that was for use with the British-made Challenger 2 tanks that Ukraine has. Now the U.S. has also sent depleted uranium for the Abrams tanks. So this Telegraph report came after Ben Wallace, who resigned as Defense Secretary last month, said he urged Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to spend billions more so Britain could overtake Germany as Ukraine's top supporter in Europe. The source speaking to the, to the Telegraph said that the onus should not be on London to provide the billions that Wallace has called for. The source said, quote, giving billions more does not mean giving billions of British kit, end quote. Now, I remember, you know, a few months back, there were some reports in British media saying, you know, that the UK was running low on a lot of things and they weren't sure how long they could keep sending all this stuff over to Ukraine. Now, Um, numbers wise, I think they've sent a few billion dollars worth or a few billion pounds worth of equipment to Ukraine, you know, nothing close to the, right now the U S is about at $43 billion in weapons that they've either sent to Ukraine or, uh, said they would buy for Ukraine. But most of it is stuff that the U S has actually shipped over there. So the British aren't anywhere close to the you know, what they've given Ukraine compared to the U.S., but they've still given them a substantial amount of ammunition and stuff. So it looks like they're tapped out. And this comes, you know, this is the latest sign that NATO support for this proxy war is fracturing. We had Poland recently declare that it would no longer provide Ukraine with weapons over that spat over the import of Ukrainian grain into Poland. Uh, Slovakia just elected a political party and a candidate who campaigned on ending U.S. Sorry, ending military support for Ukraine. And Congress still has yet to authorize the additional $24 billion in Ukraine aid that President Biden wants. So just a lot of things, you know, a lot of setbacks for the NATO alliance. 
And this is just, you know, another example of how time is on Russia's side. Uh, you know, you have NATO countries basically dropping out, saying they're not going to uh, be providing any more weapons. You know, after this counteroffensive, it's very clear now that the Ukrainian counteroffensive was not a success. So what's next? Is Russia going to launch an offensive? Is it going to kind of remain a stalemate? While the territory hasn't changed hands much, there's been a ton of fighting along the front line. Lots of people are being killed. Lots of equipment is being destroyed. So how sustainable is this for the U.S. and NATO? The next one here, the U.S. is running out of money to pay Ukrainian government salaries. So this is another issue that the U.S. is worried about when it comes to not getting more Ukraine aid uh, authorized. So the Wall Street Journal reported on Tuesday that the U.S. will run out of money to pay for Ukrainian government salaries and services within the next month if Congress does not authorize more Ukraine aid. So the U.S. and Ukraine's other Western backers have been paying the salaries of about 150,000 civil servants in Ukraine. This has been done through a form of U.S. support known as direct budgetary aid that is provided through the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, and also the World Bank. Uh, it's kind of going through the World Bank, this, the U.S. funds. So according to this Wall Street Journal report, the World Bank has sent $23.4 billion to Ukraine through this program, and $20.2 billion of that money was funded by the U.S. So it's a huge amount of money that has been spent on this that I think a lot of people don't realize this type of support is going on as well, not just the military support. And uh, the other $2 billion was from the U.K. So the U.S. is expected to provide another $1.15 billion this month. But future disbursements are unclear. Uh, they don't know what they're going to do if they don't get this new aid authorized. And as I went over recently, there was a report from 60 Minutes kind of covering this type of economic aid that the U.S. is providing Ukraine and that report found that it's not just paying, you know, funding the government, it's also subsidizing small businesses in Ukraine, helping farmers purchase seeds and fertilizers, things like that. And they spoke with the owner of a knitwear business in Ukraine, uh, and she said she acknowledged that this funding that she was getting was from the U.S. taxpayer. Um, and this Wall Street Journal report said that if Congress does not authorize the aid soon, Ukraine could use funds put aside for later spending to get through November and December. But pro prospects for 2024 are unclear. It also said that other countries and the EU could potentially increase spending on economic aid for Ukraine. Um, so, you know, the U.S. is real worried that they're not going to be able to keep paying the salaries of Ukrainian government workers. Um, all right, so the next one here, Biden tells allied leaders that Ukraine aid cannot be interrupted. This is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute. So President Biden held a call with the leaders of several allied nations to stress that weapons shipments to Ukraine cannot end for any reason. Some members of NATO recently expressed an unwillingness or inability to provide further arms to Kiev. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby stated that Biden spoke with the leaders of Canada, Italy, Japan, the UK, Poland, Romania, 
Germany, the European Commission, the European Council, and NATO. And this was on Tuesday. Kirby said that the the president expressed, quote, we cannot under any circumstances allow America's support for Ukraine to be interrupted. Time is not our friend, end quote. Biden added that he was confident Congress would authorize an additional $24 billion in aid that the White House requested. While a majority of representatives in both houses continue to support aiding Ukraine, there is growing uh, opposition with 71% of Republicans recently saying in a poll that they did not want Congress to authorize more funding. And a press release from British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said that London was committed to supporting Kiev. It stated that he outlined the UK's ongoing military, humanitarian, and economic assistance to Ukraine and stressed that this support will be continued for as long as it takes. But Kyle points out that Telegraph report that I just went over that said the UK has depleted its stockpiles of weapons that it can ship to Ukraine. So everybody's kind of scrambling now, assuring that don't worry, we're going to keep, you know, this aid spigot is going to keep flowing. We're going to keep fueling this proxy war. You know, that's that's just the name of the game uh, in the Biden administration right now. All right, so the next one here, Qatar offers to host Russia and Ukraine for peace talks. And this is another one from Kyle. So a Qatari official said that Doha could potentially host diplomats from Russia and Ukraine for negotiations aimed at ending the war. Qatar recently played a crucial role in brokering the release of American prisoners in Iran. So in an interview with Newsweek, a Qatari diplomat said that they could help play uh, help play a role in ending the war in Ukraine. This official said, quote, if asked to mediate in the Ukraine conflict, we would, of course, be ready to work toward facilitating dialogue and achieving peace in Europe. This is desperately needed. In fact, Qatar supports any and all constructive dialogue and negotiations that could lead to an end of the conflict, end quote. So before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Kremlin offered the White House a potential proposal that included ending NATO expansion to avert the conflict. And as NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg recently said, the U.S., uh, you know, rejected the Russian demands. And, you know, the, the U.S. really rejected the main thing, which was a guarantee that Ukraine won't ever join NATO. Um, and then Kyle mentions the negotiations that were going on in March 2022 and April 2022. In the early days of the war, Israel tried to broker some deals when Naftali Bennett was still the prime minister. He said his efforts were blocked by the U.S. and its allies. Uh, Turkey also hosted Ukrainian and Russian negotiators for talks. And Turkey, the foreign minister at the time, said that they thought a deal was going to be made, but then they realized that there were some in NATO, some members of NATO that wanted the war to prolong so they could weaken Russia. And then a few days after that, this is again in April 2022, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said that it was a U.S. goal to weaken Russia. There was also the reports that Boris Johnson, when he was still British prime minister in April 2022, he went over to Kiev and told Zelensky, don't negotiate with Russia, even if you want to sign a deal, the collective West does not. That's what the message was, according to Ukrainian media. So that's how the U.S. and its close allies view diplomacy. They want to uh, hinder it as much as they can. 
Um, all right, so the next one here, Taiwan tells the U.S. to speed up arms deliveries. So Taiwan's vice minister for national defense, Hsu Yen-Pu, has urged the U.S. to speed up the delivery of weapons to Taiwan that uh, Taiwan has already purchased and asked for other forms of military assistance. He made the comments on Monday at the annual U.S.-Taiwan Defense Industry Conference, which is a closed-door event being held in Williamsburg, Virginia, from Sunday to Tuesday. So according to the U.S.-Taiwan Business Council, this year's meeting marked the 22nd conference of its kind hosted in the U.S. This conference started in 2002. So Taiwanese officials and China hawks in the U.S. have complained about how long it takes for weapons uh, that Taiwan has purchased from the U.S. to be delivered. There is supposedly a $19 billion backlog in arms sales for Taiwan going back to 2019. But I always point out that, you know, these major weapon sales, they usually take years to fulfill. So 2019 is not that long ago, you know, looking at this from the proper perspective. But anyway, they're saying things are delayed. And I know some weapons that Taiwan wanted have that Taiwan was hoping to get went to the Ukraine first, including Stinger anti-aircraft missiles that Taiwan has been waiting for for a while. Um, so according to the South China Morning Post, Xu said on the sidelines of the conference that because Taiwan is an island, it's important for Taiwan to be able to quickly acquire U.S. weapons in the face of Chinese military pressure, which has grown in response to Washington increasing military and diplomatic support for, tai- for Taipei. He said, quote, given the ongoing Russian-Ukraine war, Taiwan and the U.S. have recognized the importance of speeding up the delivery of weapons systems to Taiwan to urgently beef up its defense capabilities, end quote. So he thanked President Biden for approving 11 weapon sales for Taiwan since coming into office in 2021 and for providing a $345 million weapons package in July using the Presidential Drawdown Authority, which allows the U.S. to ship weapons directly from Pentagon stockpiles, And that was unprecedented in the era of normalized U.S.-China relations. So that presidential drawdown authority, that's the main way the U.S. has been arming Ukraine. Now they're arming Taiwan in that same way. So since Washington severed diplomatic relations with Taiwan in 1979 to open up with Beijing, the U.S. has sold weapons to Taiwan, but they never financed the purchases or provided weapons free of charge. It's a point that I make a lot, but I think it's important to make because it really shows how the U.S. is upping its support for Taiwan. And this all makes China very angry. Uh, and this is all done in the name of deterrence. But if you just look at what's been going on, there's been a lot more Chinese military activity around Taiwan in response to the growing military and diplomatic ties between the U.S. and Taiwan. So Taiwan's vice defense minister is also calling for the U.S. to help establish a total life cycle systems management for U.S. weapons, which refers to a way to maintain these weapon systems that Taiwan is buying. He said the mechanism would enable more Taiwan defense companies and contractors to produce and offer maintenance services for U.S. bought weapon systems. Um, all right, so the next one here, the U.S. and the Philippines begin annual naval drills amid China tensions. 
So the U.S. and the Philippines on Monday kicked off two weeks of annual naval exercises amid heightened tensions with China in the South China Sea. And this year uh, marks the seventh and largest ever iteration of the Sama-Sama drills, which come as the U.S. and the Philippines are strengthening their alliance. So there's more than 1,800 personnel taking part in these drills, including participants from Australia, Canada, France, Japan, the UK, and Malaysia. The exercises will be conducted off the Philippine coast near Manila and south of the main Philippine island of Luzon. Um, So no indication that it's close to anywhere close to the disputed reefs in the South China Sea. According to the U.S. Navy, the exercises will include drills on anti-submarine surface and air warfare and land phases. So Vice Admiral Carl Thomas, he's the commander of the U.S. Navy's Japan-based 7th Fleet, he took aim at China in a speech during the opening ceremony of the drills in Manila, although he did not directly mention China by name, but it was very clear what he was talking about. Thomas said that the so-called rules-based international order, which is code for the U.S.-dominated world order, uh, he's saying that those rules have been ripped at and tagged at and tested to benefit not all nations, but one nation. So I guess he's he's referring to China there. Uh, he added that the drills uh, show that these drills are the best way to ensure sovereignty and security in the region. So there have been several incidents this year between Chinese and Philippine vessels over disputed rocks and reefs in the South China Sea. In the most recent standoff, the Philippine Coast Guard said that it cut a barrier that prevented Philippine vessels from from entering Scarborough Shoal. Um, And they said that this was done at the order, the direct order of Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. And he's been much more confrontational with China than his predecessor, Rodrigo Duterte. So the U.S. strongly backs the Philippines in its dispute with China and has repeatedly stated that it will intervene if Philippine vessels come under attack in the South China Sea. So that means if this maritime dispute between China and the Philippines turns hot, it could spark a war between the U.S. and China. And that's why I try to focus on this part of the world. Um, All right, so the next one here, the House ousts McCarthy as Speaker. So this was the big news on Tuesday, of course, and I'm sure everybody's aware of. Um, So the House on Tuesday voted to remove Representative Kevin McCarthy as Speaker. And this marked the first time in history that a House Speaker was removed through a resolution to oust them. So it's very interesting. And the effort was launched on Monday by Representative Matt Gates, who introduced a privileged resolution to vacate the speakership after accusing McCarthy of cutting a secret deal with President Biden on Ukraine aid. So since a handful of Republicans supported Gates's maneuver, McCarthy needed some Democrats to support him to survive, but none did. The Democrats all voted against him. The final vote was 216 to 210, and eight Republicans joined the Democrats in voting to get rid of McCarthy. So there's no clear nominee to replace McCarthy, but in the meantime, Representative Patrick McHenry, he's a Republican from North Carolina, will serve as interim speaker. So Gates had been threatening for a long time 
to launch this effort to remove McCarthy, and his decision to go through with the motion came in response to the stopgap funding bill that was passed by the House on Saturday and signed by President Biden to avert a government shutdown. The House stripped billions in Ukraine aid from the stopgap funding bill, but Gates said that McCarthy must have cut a secret deal since Democrats supported it anyway, and President Biden said on Sunday that he expected McCarthy to keep his word and secure the passage of support for Ukraine. So I'm not sure exactly how, you know, the what the situation is now in the House, if the interim speaker McHenry could put this, you know, Ukraine aid forward uh, for a vote. Uh, I'm not really sure what is going to happen here. This is kind of uncharted territory uh, for the House. And, um, you know, a lot of the rules and procedural stuff is really confusing as it is. So we'll see how this all plays out. Um, so I think this is significant, though. I mean, we still know that the majority of Congress supports the proxy war in Ukraine, but this shows that with the Republicans having control of the House, the Republicans in the House that oppose this policy, which includes Gates and uh, dozens of other Republicans who have been against this uh, funding Ukraine from the beginning, um, you know, from the beginning since the Russian invasion, Um you know, it shows that they have power, that they can do things like this. I think that's significant. I think it's good that they, you know, can stop things, can delay things, can throw out the speaker. Um, you know, I think it's a good sign. And this opposition, I think, among Republicans in Congress, I think it's going to keep growing. I mean, not that they all, many of them don't care about what their constituents actually think, but I think it is significant that there was that recent CNN poll that found 71% of Republican voters do not want more uh, spending on the Ukraine war to be authorized. Um, all right, so the next one here, two Syrian soldiers wounded by Israeli airstrikes. So at least two Syrian soldiers were wounded in Israeli airstrike on in Syria's eastern Deir Ezzor province late Monday night. This was reported by Syrian state media. Uh, a military source told Syria's Sana news agency that this uh, airstrike was carried out at approximately 11.50 p.m. on Monday night, and it injured two soldiers and caused some material damage. There's no details provided on what the strikes targeted, what kind of uh, areas they were. And by my count, this strike marked at least the 25th time that Israel bombed Syria this year. So the Deir Azor province in eastern Syria is partially is only partially controlled by the Syrian government. Um, to the east of the Euphrates River, the province is occupied by U.S. forces and the U.S.-backed Kurdish-led SDF. Uh, if you see this map here, you can see the river that's running through the center of the province. That's the Euphrates. And there's a lot of oil fields uh, in this east eastern section of the Deir Ezzor province that the U.S. occupies and controls. And this is the area where the SDF, again, that's the Kurdish U.S.-backed force, they've been fighting against Arab tribes in the region who oppose Kurdish dominance in the area. So while Israel frequently bombs Syria, it rarely comments on individual airstrikes. Israeli officials frame their operations as attacks on Iran or Hezbollah in Syria, but they often kill or injure Syrians or damage civilian infrastructure, including international airports, which Israel targets pretty frequently. And I know some people uh, might wonder why I am 
you know, I always use Syrian state media as my source on the Israeli airstrikes. And from my experience, you know, if anything, they they downplay the casualties. Um, there's other sources. There's the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights. They usually have some estimates of casualties that are much higher. And I use them sometimes, but they also kind of fluctuate. Like, they'll change their numbers a bunch. And so I just don't really know. Um, if it's worth, you know, mentioning their figure sometimes. So I think I, I would rather go with, you know, kind of the um, the downplayed version than kind of the exaggerated one, um, you, you know. So and there are, you know, sometimes if there's multiple sources on the casualties, I'll, I'll add them in there as well. If there's more confirmation, say, of the Syrian observatories casualties, then I'll include what they have to say. Um but anyway, that is it for the news for today. I left in Kyle's article from yesterday about the UN Security Council authorizing sending a force to Haiti, which is a completely US funded and US backed operation. Um, go check out our viewpoints. We have one from Ted Snyder Someone wants the war to continue. One from William D. Hartung Artificial intelligence goes to war. One from Branko Marchteach Flooding in Libya has killed thousands. NATO is directly culpable. And one from Zachary Yost, World War III requires conscription. And our spotlight is from Ahmed Ibrahim, How Black Hawk Down Led to 30 Years of Chaos for Somalia. Um, that's everything for me. Uh, you could always help out the show just by sharing it around, liking, subscribing on YouTube or Rumble, wherever you prefer to watch. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at DeCampDave. Follow the Antiwar.com account. Uh, I appreciate everybody that watches and listens. Um, I'll be back tomorrow with some more news for you. Thanks for listening.